Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, still our minds and hearts now from all of the things that have happened during this week and all of the things that are on our minds and we pray that you might help us for the next little while to concentrate on your word. Speak to us, we pray, as you have been speaking to us already as your word was read. Give us wisdom that we might see clearly the future that is coming and the present that we live in and so live rightly now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the issue in our passage uh, this morning is the millennium and final judgment. And I think there is no doubt about it that our world is obsessed with the end of the world. Our movie cinemas are all filled with end-of-the-world type movies. I uh, wonder if you can name a few. I thought of uh, War of the Worlds or uh, Armageddon, Deep Impact, uh, maybe Terminator 2 Judgment Day or The Matrix, my personal favourite. They're, they're all about the end of the world as we know it, whether it's a nuclear holocaust or a, or a comet from deep space or, or intelligent machines based on uh, you know, wiping out the human race. We're all obsessed, it seems, uh, with the end of the world. And, of course, our Christians are no exception to this. And when the Bible talks about the end of the world in somewhat uh, cryptic ways often, most Christians cannot help but speculate as to how it's all going to unfold. That uh, the man up there is, anyone know him? Harold Camping. And how he wrongly predicted the, the end of the world would come on May 21st, 2011, through a, 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 an interpretation of the book of Revelation. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the end of the world in 1874. In 1914, in 1935, in 1975, and the latest failed prophecy, 1994. Christian history, it seems, is, is littered with strange doctrines, millennial speculations, and fascinations about how the world is going to end. And, well, so much of that speculation originates from the passage that's before us this morning, Revelation 20. <laughs> It's a passage that has divided churches, denominations, and even countries for nearly 500 years. But I think it is such a pity that so many are obsessed with the meaning of this thousand years that they completely miss the important point this passage makes ever so clearly. Final judgment is coming. We will all stand before God's judgment throne to receive either eternal life or eternal death. My aim for this morning is that we will be ready for the final judgment and so live rightly now. Well, a few quick points about the context before we get into the passage for the, for the day. The first one, uh, the book of Revelation describes life now and not just life in the future. Uh, some Christians read the book of Revelation as if it's only about the circumstances of Jesus' return. And so they work out all of these things that's all going to happen when Jesus returns. But we've seen, chapters 1 to 3, that John has written these letters to the seven churches. And they're all about their present experience. And all the way through the book, we've read of how Satan, with his beasts and his harlot and his forces, have been persecuting Christians now. 
and they need to endure now. We need to be clear, our passage before us this morning is not really about the future so much, but Christian experience now. And secondly, we've seen that the book of Revelation is not a purely chronological book. It has these repeating cycles that take us again and again from Jesus' death and resurrection all the way up to Jesus' return. Sorry, I've done that the wrong way, isn't it? Jesus' return over here. So we've had the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the the seven bowls of God's wrath. And, And it's been especially true of these chapters here in chapters 17 to 20, As I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's something like an action replay. Looking at the same event, the defeat of evil from different angles, again and again and again. Chapters 17 and 18, the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb and the wedding supper of God, God's judgment. And here in chapter 20, the climax, it seems, the destruction of Satan himself. So three points for this morning's passage. Point one, the thousand years. Point two, the defeat of Satan. And point three, the final judgment. Well, let us turn to point one. We're going to spend a lot of time here, and the others will be a bit shorter. Well, in verses uh, one to three, we see the binding of Satan for a thousand years. Uh, In verses 4 to 6, we will see uh, Christians reigning for the same 1,000 years. And if you look at verse 7, what will happen next is Satan will be released. Then there's a final battle. And in verses 9 and 10, we read Satan and his army are destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, And so the question frequently comes then... (laughs) When is this thousand years? I mean, is it, is it a literal thousand years? Is it a metaphorical thousand years? Uh, uh, does this thousand years come before the return of Jesus or does it come after it? Are we in the thousand years now? So many questions that we might have. And there basically are three main views which you can uh, see on that diagram on your page or up on the screen there. Let me just explain them very briefly. The first one is uh, premillennialism. It's got two variants there, but basically it says that Jesus returns pre or before the thousand years. Uh, Jesus reigns, he reigns on the earth, evil is restrained, Israel is converted, perhaps Christians are raptured to heaven, but basically Jesus returns, there's a thousand years, and then the final judgment. Uh, the second two views. Uh, almost the same, but they believe that Jesus, the return of Jesus and the judgment day come after the thousand years. And so amillennialism believes that the thousand years is is a figurative period of time that represents the time from Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming. And postmillennialism is basically the same, except there's going to be a golden age of world evangelism for a thousand years where the whole world will be converted and then... Jesus will return. Now, I'm going to promote a particular view as we go through this passage, but I want us to work carefully from the passage itself and draw our conclusions from the passage uh, itself. So firstly then, the binding of Satan and verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, 
that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, one of the main stumbling blocks as we come to these verses is the very first word there in verse 1. What does it say? Then. Because premillennialists, those who think Jesus returns before the thousand years, will point out to us that the very last thing that happened in chapter 19 was, well, the return of Jesus to defeat his enemies. In other words, Jesus returns before the thousand years, premillennialism. But we must remember, as I mentioned at the start, that chapters 17 to 20 are not purely chronological. They're, they're a series of action replays. They focus first on the defeat of Babylon, then on the defeat of the beast, and now here, the defeat of Satan. Uh, you see the, the same events repeating again and again and again. And we know that it's a repetition of exactly the same events because in every chapter, 17, 19, 20, well, what happens? There's a great battle where all the forces of evil come against Jesus and then Jesus wins. And even here in verse 1, the word then should be translated and. Now, there's a Greek word that means then, there's a Greek word that means and, here it just means and. What we have here is not a sequence of events, we just have the next vision, the next action replay of the defeat of evil. Well, in verse 1, we're told who binds Satan. It's this unnamed angel, and it's a bit strange, but in chapter 9, verse 1, we're, we read of this angel that he received the key to the bottomless pit from Jesus himself. So Satan is bound according to Jesus' own will. And in verse 2, we get Satan's full identification, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Here is the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, now restrained. In verse 3, we're told why he is restrained. Notice it says, so that he may no longer do his deadly work of deceiving the nations anymore. And then we're told how long he's bound for? A thousand years. Now, most premillennialists will take this as thousand years literally, They'll try and map out the book of Revelation with all of its events onto human history to show where we're up to and how, when, is, when is Jesus going to return. But I think we should ask the question, why should the thousand years here be literal? In every other number that we've read in the whole of the book of Revelation has been symbolic. Why not this one? I mean, think about it. 1,000. Anyone here good at maths? What is it? 10 times 10 times 10. 10, the number of completeness. 10 cubes, well, a lengthy time, but complete. Satan is bound a thousand years. And then in verse 4 to 6, we see the reign of the saints for this same thousand years. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. Well, you can see why this is happy hunting ground for speculations. And we have all kinds of questions as we read these verses, don't we? I mean, who is reigning here? Are those seated on the throne the same as the beheaded martyrs? And are they the same as those who who did not receive the mark of the beast? Well, we have a clue, I think, in verse 6, because we're told that these people share in the first resurrection and they are called priests of God as they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, if you really have a very good memory, you'll remember these phrases have occurred beforehand in the book of Revelation. On two occasions, all Christians have been described as priests and kings who reign with Jesus now. Have a look at chapter 1 and verse 5, right at the introduction. It's on the screen as well. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, that's Jesus, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Next slide, chapter 5, verse 10. We read as uh, the celebration in heaven of the, the Lamb who is worthy. They say, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. See, all Christians are identified as kings and priests. Now, all Christians, you see, are those who do not receive the mark of the beast. Now, all Christians are those who remain faithful to Jesus even if it means going to their death. And so our passage is saying here that all Christians have been resurrected now and are reigning with Jesus now and will escape the second death later. So again, we have another question, don't we? I mean, what kind of a resurrection is this? I mean, is it a physical resurrection? Is it a spiritual resurrection? I mean, what kind of a resurrection is this? What does it mean for Christians to share in the first resurrection? And again, your premillennial friends will tell you, well, this is a a bodily resurrection. Jesus will come back. He'll be walking around on the earth. You'll reign with him for a thousand years. Maybe you'll be raptured up into heaven, but it's physical. Now, they invent a third resurrection for the Bible, Jesus' resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus with, uh, with the saints on the earth, and then the final resurrection of all right at the end. And I think one of the uh, alarm bells for that kind of interpretation here is that the rest of the New Testament, there are only ever two resurrections. Can you think of them? There's the resurrection of Jesus and Christians who are raised spiritually in him. And then there is the, the final resurrection, the judgment day, when we all stand before God's throne. There's only ever two resurrections now, we read of the spiritual resurrection of Christians in places like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. It's on the screen. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christians are those who have been raised from spiritual death 
to spiritual life. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 5, we crossed from death to life. Now, Christians sit with Jesus in heaven spiritually now. We reign with Jesus now. We have no fear of the second death. Why? Because we've already been raised from spiritual death to life. And only at the end of this thousand years, well, everyone else will be raised physically, but it will only be for final judgment. Now, if you've just tuned out from everything that I've said the last five minutes, I don't blame you, but now's the time to tune back in, okay? Here's the point, all right? Catch the main point. What we have here, I think, is amillennialism. There's no return of Jesus before final judgment. There's no rapture of Christians to heaven here. There's no bodily resurrection of Christians before the final judgment day. What we have here is a thousand years which are symbolic of the whole period from Jesus' first coming to his second coming, the time when Satan is bound, when we've been raised spiritually with Christ now to reign with him as priests. Now, if you followed me, we have another question that we need to ask. What then does it mean that Satan is bound now? I mean, we look around the world and it just seems so hard to believe, doesn't it? I mean, just uh, Friday evening, the horrific terrorist attack in Paris. The week before that, the exploded plane in Egypt. Awful. On the news last night, I read of people smugglers who... uh, get refugees, put them at gunpoint and then steal all of their money as they flee from Syria. I mean, Satan seems alive and kicking in our world today. What does it mean that he is bound now? Well, the clue is there in verse 3, isn't it? What does his binding mean? It means, verse 3, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Think about it. In the Old Testament, it was Satan who deceived Adam and Eve. In the Old Testament, it was Satan who deceived the nations. Yes, the Jews were God's people, but the the nations, well, they were pagans under Satan's control. And when Jesus came, what did he do? Well, Mark chapter 3, verse 27, he came to bind Satan. Jesus came, he died on the cross And as he died for our sins, he took people from Satan's rule and reign and he brought them into the kingdom of God. As Jesus died on the cross, the flood doors were opened for the gospel to stream out to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. Do we see Satan bound now? Well, yes, we do. There are now millions of Christians around the world, from every tribe, nation, language and people who name Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Now, Revelation 20 is telling us here, Satan may do his worst to persecute Christians. Christians may even lose their heads. But God has bound Satan so that no matter what he does, he cannot stop the nations from entering the kingdom of God. We live in an age of tremendous gospel opportunity. Satan is bound that the gospel may go to the ends 
of the earth. And so Christians are those, like the martyrs, who are to testify to Jesus and to the word of God, even if it means they will lose their heads. Because even if they lose their heads, well, they reign with Jesus in glory. Why did the martyrs lose their heads, verse 4? For the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God. What does it mean in the Bible for us to be priests of God, reigning with Christ? Well, the rest of the Bible makes it very clear. It means making God known to the nations. Uh, In Exodus 19, that was Israel's commission. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, in order to make God known to the nations. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, this is the commission of all Christians. You can see it on the screen there, how we are described. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Satan is bound so that the gospel may go forward. And so we reign with Christ as priests, proclaiming the gospel to the nations, knowing that whatever Satan does, even if we lose our heads, he cannot win. Even if we are martyred for Jesus, we reign with Christ. And when he returns, the second death has no power. What a great encouragement for us this morning to testify to Jesus in the office, in the university, in the home. I mean, will you invite someone to this marvellous guest night that we have coming up? Will you invite someone to church? Satan is bound that the gospel may go to the nations. Well, there's point one, the thousand years. Uh, Is it more easy going from here? Point two the defeat of Satan. Well, in verses uh, 7 and 8, Satan is released for a final battle. Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's the imagery from Ezekiel, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Well, we were told in uh, verse 3 that after a thousand years, Satan must be released. And so he is. Here is God achieving his sovereign purposes. And as Satan is uh, released, what does he do? He commences his deceptive work. He gathers the nations once again for a great final battle. And as I've uh, mentioned earlier, I think here is where the pre-millennial case just completely vanishes into nothing because this is the fourth time now we have seen all the nations gathered together for battle. We've had this sequence already, have we not? Chapter 16, with ba- chapter 17, chapter 19. At the end of chapter 19, everyone was dead. So what's, what's happening here? If you're reading it as a sequence, well, it doesn't make any sense. They were already dead at the end of chapter 19. No, this is an action replay. But this time, it's in these climactic terms. 
using this imagery from Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, all the hordes of evil gathered together for one last assault against God and his king to overthrow him. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, if you've done Bible overview, you probably will recognize that phrase. It's usually used for God's people, isn't it? But here is the multitude of the enemy. And yet, as we've seen in the last three battles, their rebellion lasts but an instant. Just as in Revelation 19, there's a swift defeat. Verse 9, But fire came down from heaven and consume them. Just in a moment, evil is overthrown. Do not fear evil. Our world is full of evil at the moment, isn't it? Do not feel fear evil. Satan may persecute God's people all he likes, but his power is limited now, and he will be destroyed in the end. So with that, we close with the vision of final judgment and then point three. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The throne is white, symbolizes the conquest and victory. God sits on his throne And it's the end of the world. The earth and the sky flee. Creation is dissolved. And what all that remains is the dead standing before God for final judgment. And the books are opened. The imagery from Daniel 7, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, they're confronting verses. And I'm sorry to raise this topic again, but God's word does it again, isn't it? (laughs) There are the books, plural. And then the book, singular. Uh, The books, plural, containing a record of all the sins of every person who has ever lived. Note the universal nature of this judgment. Everyone is there, isn't it? Verse 12, the great and the small. doesn't matter what your position on earth here is now. Everyone stands before God. Verse 13, the sea gives up the dead. Death and Hades gives up the dead. There's no escape from this judgment No bribe you can give to flee from this one. Even in death, you will face final judgment. Sometimes in our world, people escape justice, don't they? We just read on the, heard on the news 
of Jihadi John being killed, that, uh, that murderer who executed many, uh, many people over in Syria. Well, he won't escape the judgment of God, will he? And notice how fair God's judgment will be, verse 12. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Again in verse 13, they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. God's judgment will be perfectly just. The books record everything that we have ever done. Every careless word, every lustful thought, every angry outburst, every deceitful lie, it will all be there in plain sight. We can hide it from one another, but we cannot hide it from God. There'll be no lack of evidence in God's judgment. It will all be there. We can hide, hide things from our Facebook feed. We can hide things from our internet search history, but we cannot... We can delete records of corruption, but we can never delete a single word from God's books. It's really useless to think that your good deeds can outweigh your bad deeds. At this judgment, no one will stand. Every evil deed will receive its just reward. And what is that? We see the judgment in verse 15. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. God's judgment will be awful and it will be eternal. We saw it in uh, verse 10. In the lake of fire, what happens? Well, they are tormented day and night, forever and ever. And what an awful subject to talk about this morning. But God wants us to see without Jesus as the Lord and Saviour of your life, there's only one future. Continuous, eternal, conscious torment in the fires of hell. But praise God there's an escape, isn't it? Because there's also the book, singular, the book of life. Earlier in Revelation, it's given its uh, full title, chapter 13, verse 8. It is the book of life of the lamb that was slain. And how can we escape God's judgment? Well, there's only one way, trusting in Jesus and his death for us on the cross. For there at the cross, as Jesus was slain, He took all the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Everyone who trusts in Jesus can be cleansed, can be forgiven, can be saved. The second death has no power. There's no more judgment for the Christian because their judgment has been paid in full already at the cross. Only through Jesus can our names be written in the book of life. But the sobering warning in verse 15, not everyone's name will be there. (laughs) If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
You see, this is what the millennium is about. Now, the millennium is not about the future. We're not meant to study this passage and map it onto history. And you know, as if Gog is Russia and Magog is China and there's going to be a battle. And No. Christians endlessly speculate on this passage and they completely miss the point. Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. The sa- now, the saints reign now. We've been raised spiritually now. We've crossed from death to life now, John 5. We have new birth now, John 2. And as Satan lies bound, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. But judgment day is coming. Satan will be defeated. And all who have not bowed the knee to Jesus will be swiftly and eternally destroyed. The millennium is God's gracious pause on history. The millennium is God stopping the clock of his judgment so that world evangelism can take place. And why has Jesus not yet returned? It's been two millennium now. It's because God is pausing his judgment so that his suffering but reigning people may be his priests and bring the gospel to every tribe and nation and language and people. We're living in this extraordinary time of grace and gospel opportunity. The devil is restrained and we have the opportunity to make Jesus known so that more and more people can have their names found in the book of life saved by Jesus' death rather than judged by their actions. I wonder, are you living in the light of final judgment? Do you honestly and truly believe that unless your friends, your colleagues, your parents, your children... your friends, put their faith in Jesus as their own personal Lord and Saviour, that they will face God's awful, eternal judgment. I long from the bottom of my heart to see my grandmother, my auntie, my brother, my in-laws saved from God's judgment. Do you? Really? Will you invite them to the guest night? Yes, they may reject you, but if they reject Jesus, what is the cost for them? Will you share the gospel with your parents? Will you take this message of the lamb that was slain to the nations? But as we finish, we better consider ourselves. In which book will our names be found? The book of judgment, where we'll be condemned for what we have done? Or the book of life, where we'll be saved by Jesus' blood? Where will we find our names? Well, let us make sure 
that our name is written in the book of life, that we trust in the Lamb that was slain. Shall we pray? No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sobering reminder this morning that every single person in this world will one day stand before your judgment throne, will stand before the books that record everything that we have ever done. Lord, we know if it depended on us, we would all be condemned. And so we thank you for sending your dear son, the Lamb, to die in our place on the cross, to take the punishment we deserve for our sins, so that our name may be in the book of life, so that we may reign with Jesus and have no fear at all of the second death. And we thank you, Father, for your great mercy that you have caused your judgment and that you have bound Satan that the gospel may go to the ends of the earth. So use us, we pray. Give us courage to share the gospel with all who you have put in our lives that they too may turn to Jesus and find salvation in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.